Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. That was a pretty brutal Mercury retrograde, wasn't it, the last couple of weeks? Uh, Massive storms wiping out the United States, a good chunk of certainly Texas. Um, We had two airplanes have their engines fall apart. Our show had a bunch of technical problems that all seemed to track back to uh, Portland having lost power over the weekend. And when things came back up, our, the various computer systems in our studio that interact with each other uh, had to come up in a particular order, and they didn't. <laughs> so packets got jumbled and lost, and it was just a mess for a couple of days uh, until we figured that out. Uh, you know, lessons learned. And, uh, and of course, uh, now that Mercury is no longer retrograde, things are popping. Oh, uh, one last thing to the Mercury retrograde. Um, this, uh, that's, of course, in astrology when Mercury seems to be going backwards. And, you know, I'm not sure I believe this stuff, but um, I got turned on a Mercury retrograde a long time ago. And, and I keep an eye on it, and it always seems to creep up on us and hit us over the head. Anyhow, uh, Mercury's no longer retrograde. Um, but uh, one other thing that happened, Gene Taylor. You know Gene Taylor? He was, uh, he was a, uh, I, I think, the keyboardist with canned heat. Froze to death in his house in Austin as a consequence of uh, Republican Governor Greg Abbott and, and, all, you know, the, and the Republican leadership of the state of Texas wanting to have this kind of go-it-alone energy policy. You know, we don't need no stinking regulations pulling out of literally the United States. Now, this was long before Abbott was governor, but, um, you know, it's been maintained year after year after year. And as a result, literally, people froze to death, including this guy from Canned Heat. I mean, it's just, just terrible, terrible. But now that, now that Mercury Retrograde is over... The Supreme Court has uh, woken up and done some nice things. They, uh, they said to a, a grand jury in New York City, uh, sure, you want to see Trump's taxes? No problem. This goes back to October of last year uh, when Trump took this to the Supreme Court. He's been fighting this now for years. And then uh, the Republicans wanted the Supreme Court to uh, look at their claims of so-called voter fraud in Wisconsin. And the Supreme Court said, nah, there's nothing to see here. Forget that. 
and they wanted the Supreme Court to take up their so-called voter fraud case in Pennsylvania. And the Supreme Court said, Republicans, you know, take a walk, take a hike. Ain't going to happen. So what's going on now? Well, Donald Trump has apparently laid out a ruthless plan to stop out demo- stomp out democracy in 2024. Uh, that was my headline on Saturday over at Medium.com. Uh, Trump's ruthless plan to stop out d- democracy. And what it is, I was I was predicting. Now this was day before yesterday. I was predicting that Donald Trump at the CPAC conference, which is uh, either at the end of this week or early next week. Uh, or, the, or this coming next weekend. I think it's this coming next weekend. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I always used to go to CPAC for probably 10 years, maybe longer. Every single year I went to CPAC and I would be the one progressive and all these conservative talk show hosts. Because, of course, that's, you know, America's radio uh, landscape. And, uh, you know, it's always interesting. But the last couple of years haven't made it. It's just, it's, it's turned into crazy town. You know, it's just like, but I don't know, maybe, maybe once CPAC is going on, we can get some of these, some of these uh, folks back on and, and uh, see what they're up to. But anyhow, I, I was predicting on Saturday that Donald Trump would use CPAC to declare his candidacy for president in 2024. And I pointed out that there's a whole bunch of upsides to Trump for this. Number, the first, if they go after him the way they're going after, the way they put Al Capone in prison, Al Capone was responsible for all kinds of crimes, you know, bootlegging, murder, conspiracy to murder, theft, robbery, beating people. I mean, you know, extortion, blackmail, you name it. Al Capone did it. But all they could ultimately nail him on was tax evasion, income tax evasion. And that's what he went to prison for. Well, Cyrus Vance in New York City is going after Donald Trump for the same thing. So if he's running for president, when Vance, who is a Democrat, comes after him, or Letitia James, the attorney general for the state of New York, comes after him, or, you know, pretty much anybody else who isn't a Republican comes at well, even if they're a Republican, comes after him, he will be able to say, oh, you know, he'll, he'll be yelling and squealing that, you know, it's just partisan. They're just coming after me because they don't want me to be president. They're coming after me because they're Democrats, or they're coming after me because they're Republicans who want to be president, or want the, their favorite person. They want Lindsey Graham to be president. They want Ted Cruz to be president. They don't want me to be president, and that's why they're coming after me. So, number one, he gets an excuse, which, you know, Trump's entire life, he's never, never taken responsibility for anything. It's always, he always blames other things on other people. So number one. Number two, if he declares that he's running for president or even strongly implies it, he'll be able to begin raising money again in a big way. Now, I checked out DonaldJTrump.com over the weekend, and sure enough, he's still raising money. His website is still up and it's still asking for donations. But it hasn't been kicked into high gear in a way, uh, basically since January 6th. He hasn't, he hasn't been sending out these daily four and five and six emails from him and his son Eric and his, his daughter uh, Ivanka and, and uh, you know, others. But he can crank that back up. And keep in mind, in the, just in the, what, eight, ten weeks or so after he lost the election, he raised something on the order of four to six hundred million dollars telling his, his breathless donors that he was going to use this money to fight election fraud and fight and stop the steal, right? That, that was his big thing. Well, there, it turns out 
there was some election fraud. There were four people in Pennsylvania, and the state attorney general or the state secretary of state nailed them. Four people in Pennsylvania who registered dead relatives, three of them a dead parent, one of them a dead spouse, four people who registered dead relatives to vote and then voted absentee ballots in their names. Four people out of millions. And three out of the four voted for Trump. But, you know, did it change the election? Was it, is it worth bringing down your electoral system? No. So anyhow, that's, that's uh, the big second benefit for Donald Trump is that, you know, he gets to raise money like there's no tomorrow. Um, the third is he gets to satisfy his ego. He gets to go back on his roadshow. He loves nothing more than standing in front of a thousand people and having them scream, I love you, at him. This is what he lives for. And so he's going to get that back. And it's going to be real interesting to see how this, how this plays out with the GOP. I mean, his approval rating among Republicans is now back above 50%. And Fareed Zakaria pointed out on Sunday, I don't know if you caught it, on CNN, on his program, uh, this report, I think he said it was from the Competitive Enterprise Institute, although I couldn't find it online. But um, uh, Fareed said that 56% of Trump supporters believe that violence is justified in order to seize or maintain or hold political power, which is a purely fascist position and is just mind-boggling. By the way, that four to six hundred million dollars that Trump raised after he lost the election, in addition to the, you know, he raised one point two billion, I think it was, during the four years of his presidency for his run for re-election. Well, Jared Kushner and Donald Trump created a little private corporation and funneled between four and six hundred million dollars out of that into this corporation. Nobody knows where that money went. It's just amazing. So that's going on. And, and you know, we'll, we'll continue the conversation about that. How do you think that's going to play out? What do you think? Is this going to help the Republican Party or hurt the Republican Party? What, what happens when a naked fascist runs for president after he's been revealed as such, not just, you know, mumbling warnings? We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And the Merrick Garland hearings for Attorney General are going on and uh, watching Ted Cruz suck up to him. And I think it's fairly obvious he's going to be confirmed as our next Attorney General. That's a good thing. Mike in Lomita, California. Hey, Mike, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's on your mind? Hey, Tom. You know, I've been listening to all that stuff that's happening in Texas, and I think it's time that we rewrite the sacred book of Ronald Reagan and change the mm-hmm. opening line from uh, the nine scariest words are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help, uh, in light of all these kids freezing to death in their beds and people's pipes bursting and getting stuck with thousands of dollars in electrical bills because the non-regulated utilities were too cheap to winterize even after the catastrophe of 10 years ago. I think the new nine scariest words are, I'm for the free market, let it fix everything. Because in Texas, it surely did. Or I'm from the Republican Party and I'm here to help. (laughs) Yeah, that works too. They're virtually the same thing. And it's interesting that... uh, 
that, uh, you know, Ken Lay's name came up this morning on one of the uh, public affairs shows and deregulation of the electrical market in Texas because that was part of a big swindle on uh, California and the nation, inevitably, when uh, George W. Bush named Lay to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And then they started doing all that fraud with the uh, electrical supply and bilking people out of, you know, millions of dollars. Ken Lay was on FERC? Yeah. How did I miss that? That's that's my memory of it. But then uh, when they started having ruling uh, blackouts in California, they started a recall campaign against the then Democratic governor, Gray Davis, and they managed to get him out. And uh, after meeting uh, secretly and privately with Ken Lay, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger ran for governor. And since it's, he's a celebrity and this is California and they can literally get away with murder, he was elected governor. Well, they're yeah, doing that was the when Daryl Issa broke down in tears. Remember that? Daryl right. Issa thought he was right. going to be the guy who was going to replace Gray Davis. And uh, when Schwarzenegger entered the race, uh, he was doing some kind of press something or other. And somebody told him, and he's like, really? And, and tears came to his eyes. <laughs> it's like, well, now, after, another repu- yeah. after another Republican president has screwed us over by not attacking the uh, COVID problem and causing all these mm-hmm. thousands of deaths and closing things down, they are running another recall campaign, this time against uh, Mr. Newsom, and on the right. basis of... Uh, you know, things are closed down and, oh, the kids should be back in school and this, that, or whatever they can throw at it. So it's yeah, the same old pattern. Have, yeah, it's, it, you know, it, it, I, I don't think they're going to, I don't think it's going to go go anywhere. Um, but, I, you know, I completely agree with you, Mike. This is the same old, same old. Um, this is the equivalent of the Benghazi hearings. It's, you know, you take small stuff, you blow it up as much as you can, you use it as a political weapon, and you use it to try and take down a Democrat. And, you know, it's so sad that these Republicans are not willing to say, you know, hey, let's talk about making things better for average Americans. They have no interest in that. Republicans always remind me of the pickpocket who runs through the uh, station yelling, stop thief, to distract attention from himself. Yeah, there you go. Good one, Mike. Good one. Mike, thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from you. Stick around. It's the Tom Hartman program, occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week. We'll be right back with more of your calls and my thoughts. Uh, You know, how do you think this is all going to play out for the GOP? I also want to get into the two Santa Claus theory. They're going to they're rolling it out again this week. I'll tell you about that on the other side. It's quick. So over at TomHartman.Medium.com, I published a piece. Uh, this week, the GOP will again roll out the brutal scam they've used to con America for 40 years. And what is this? Well, you know, you've heard me talk about this for years and years and years, but every now and then it just gets so vivid. I wanted to sensitize people in advance, particularly people who might be new to this whole political game and, and, and how the Republicans are playing it. 
And it's Jude Wininsky's old two Santa Claus theory from 1974. In 74, the Republican Party was in absolute shambles. Uh, this was the year that Richard Nixon resigned. Jerry Ford came into office. Jerry Ford uh, stumbled, cl you know, climbing the stairs to Air Force One. Everybody thought, oh my God, he's, I, he was actually fairly, fairly agile. He had been a football player in college, but um, <clears throat> he, you know, Jerry was just kind of an average guy from Grand Rapids, Michigan. And uh, the Republicans were convinced that they were just like toast. It was going to be a generation before they had power again. And so Judy Wininsky comes along and says, okay, the problem that Republicans have is not Richard Nixon's scandals, and it's not Jerry Ford being an, uh, you know, an income poop or a bumbler. The problem that the Republican Party has is that for ever since the 1930s, the Democrats have played Santa Claus to the American people, showering them with gifts, Social Security, long-term unemployment benefits, uh, the minimum wage, Medicare, Medicaid, um, workplace protection, safety protections in the workplace, the right to unionize, Food and Drug Administration, making sure that your food is safe and your drugs are actually what they say they are, um, the Department of Interior protecting our national parks and, and forest lands, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, yes, Richard Nixon signed that after he vetoed it. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was not his favorite piece of legislation. Uh, the Environmental Protection Agency protecting our environment and our water and our air. All you know, Democrats did all that stuff and all all of it was done over the objection of Republicans. So Winiski points out in 74, in this op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, that the American people, because of this, view Democrats as Santa Claus and view Republicans as, as Uncle Scrooge. You know, as Scrooge, as the guy who's saying no to everything. And he said, we've got to change that image. We've got to become Santa Claus in our own realm, we Republicans. And we've got to force the Democrats to shoot their own Santa Claus. And the theory he came up with was just brilliant. It was so simple, so straightforward. At that time, in 1974, the entire national debt, the entire debt for the United States was about $600 billion. It was insignificant. And he said, when a Republican comes into the White House... We need to run up that debt as hard and as fast as we can. And there will be a couple of side effects of this. Um, number one, by spending money like crazy, you are going to stimulate the economy and produce a sugar high that will cause people to think that having a Republican in the White House is a really good thing because the economy is really rip-roaring. Number two, and most important, you run up the national debt so high that when a Democrat comes into office, you start screaming about the debt hysterically, oh my God, this is, you know, a credit card, our children, this is going to, and that Democrat must stop, start cutting social programs and shoot the Democratic Santa Claus. They're going to have to cut Medicare, Medicaid, they're going to have to cut back on long-term unemployment benefits. And, and in fact, you know, this is what Bill Clinton did. He ended welfare as we know it, right? Uh, shortened the period of time that people could get long-term unemployment benefits, all kinds of stuff like that. And he handed George W. Bush a balanced budget, as had Jimmy Carter to, to Reagan, a balanced budget. And so what does George W. Bush do? Back to two Santa Clauses. Reagan took the national debt from $800 billion to $2.5 trillion. And George W. Bush, you know, put two multi-trillion dollar wars on our national credit card without even including them in the budget. They didn't even get put in the budget until Obama became president. And two multi-trillion dollar tax cuts for billionaires and big, and, and big corporations. And then, of course, Trump did the same thing. And in, the, in between, Obama was, you know, okay, we'll be fiscally conservative. 
It's insane. Well, they're going to roll it out again. This week, in all probability, the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package that uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats have put together is going to be dropped in the House and Senate. And I guarantee you, you are going to have a television screen full. I mean, right now, Merrick Garland is kind of the spectacle. God bless him. Uh, this is the guy who went after Timothy McVeigh. He knows how to deal with right-wing murderers. Um, but, uh, you know, so that's the spectacle right now. But I, I guarantee you, as Democrats are saying, we need $1.9 trillion to put America back together to protect people, to save small businesses. The Republicans are going to be going, oh, but the debt. Oh, my God. We've got the national debt. You know, it's, it's just they're, they're just going to be, oh, you know, just twisting themselves into knots around this. And it's going to be real interesting to see who in the media goes along with it. We'll be back with your calls after the break. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. You think they're going to get away with it? You think Trump is going to get away with running for president as a scam for the next four years? Do you think that the, 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 the two Santa Claus strategy is going to work for the Republicans this time? Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America by a guy named Tom Hartman. This is from the introduction, A Rebellion Against Monarchy. And it opens with a quote from Abraham Lincoln. The candid citizen must confess that if the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court the instant they are made, then in ordinary litigation between parties and personal actions, the people will have ceased to be their own rulers, having, to that extent, practically resigned their government into the hands of that eminent Supreme Court tribunal. It's from his first inaugural speech, explaining why he was refusing to recognize Dred Scott. From the time Americans wake up in the morning throughout their days, work or play, right through a full night's sleep, everything they do, touch, ingest, breathe, and use, has been touched in one way or another by the Supreme Court. Food, drugs, transportation, clothes, furniture, roadways, water, septic, electricity, everything in modern life is regulated in some way, either in manufacture, distribution, sale, or use 
And those regulations are allowed or disallowed ultimately by the U.S. Supreme Court. At home and in the workplace, Americans' lives are regulated by the Supreme Court also. Whether there could be a minimum wage or unemployment insurance, how much power employers have over labor unions and employees, whether consumers can sue when harmed by products or corporate actions, and how far police and other agencies can go in prosecuting or sometimes persecuting individuals or entire groups of people. The court determines and defines the limits of your right to protest and your right to a free press. It has final say in everything from taxation to regulation, from public space to private space, from contraception to marriage. Both directly and indirectly, the court determines how wealth can be earned, accumulated, and disposed of. It decides how far the rich can go in exploiting the poor and working people, and whether working people can fight back. Meanwhile, America has ended up, mostly since around 1980, with one of the most corrupted political systems in the developed world, with billionaires and big corporations literally writing legislation to benefit themselves from the federal to state to local levels. As Tim Wu wrote for the New York Times in March 2019, quote, about 75% of Americans favor higher taxes for the ultra-wealthy. The idea of a federal law that would guarantee paid maternity leave attracts 67% support. 83% favor strong net neutrality rules for broadband, and more than 60% want stronger privacy laws. 71% think we should be able to buy drugs imported from Canada, and 92% want Medicare to negotiate for lower drug prices, end quote. Yet Congress as a whole has not even once seriously considered any of these things in decades. The reason, quite simply, is literally billions of dollars of politically poisonous cash flowing from corporations and ideologically motivated billionaires into the bloodstream of our body politic. And it wasn't Congress or any president in history who changed laws to make this possible. It was the Supreme Court. Right now and throughout much of U.S. history, the ideological makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court has had little resemblance to the political makeup of our nation. In 2019, for instance, solid majorities of Americans supported a woman's right to access abortion and birth control, voting rights, a national health care system, well-funded public schools and free education through college, higher taxes on corporations to pay for infrastructure and an expanded social safety net, and regulation of corporate behavior from pollution to banking. These are issues that enjoy majority support from working Americans and American communities but not from corporate America or America's billionaires. As this book shows in parts one and two, the court has historically almost always sided with the wealthy, the powerful, and the corporate against the poor, the weak, and the individual. In many cases, these decisions have struck down laws passed by Congress and signed by the president, a process called judicial review. This book answers the core questions about the Supreme Court's decisive role in determining the fate of the planet. Why did the framers create the Supreme Court? What is judicial review, and how does it make the Supreme Court what Thomas Jefferson, post-1803, called a despotic branch? How does the history of the U.S. Constitution explain the Court's frequent decisions in favor of the wealthy and corporations? When has the Court sided with popular opinion, and how have people successfully challenged the Court in the past? How did a 20th century coalition of businesses and billionaires seize control of the American government, including the Supreme Court? And why is this now a planetary crisis? Most important, what can Americans do about all this? In the beginning, there were those among the founders and framers of the Constitution who didn't mean for the court to have this much power. Thomas Jefferson was among them. Part one of this book dives into the philosophies that guided the men who drafted the Constitution. It also shows how in 1803, the Supreme Court set itself above Congress and the president 
with the power to review, strike down, or rewrite laws based on its own lone interpretation of the Constitution. Importantly, the framers of the Constitution gave no consideration to the rights of nature or even of the environment other than its sheer productive potential to enhance the wealth of the nation. Instead of the environment, when the Constitution was written in the summer and fall of 1787, the new thing in political circles was the idea of property rights for commoners, which had only clearly been articulated outside of the realm of royal prerogatives during the previous few centuries. John Locke wrote in his 1689 Two Treatises of Government that the main purpose of government was to make sure that, quote, no one may take away or damage anything that contributes to the preservation of anyone else's life, liberty, health, limb, or goods. It's the hidden history of the Supreme Court and the betrayal of America by Tom Harbin. One last story I want to bring your attention to. Uh, a fellow by the name of Raymond Wood uh, recently died and left behind a letter that was to be opened upon his death. And in that letter, Raymond Wood confesses that he was working with the New York Police Department and the FBI as, a, as an, an informant and an infiltrator into Malcolm X's organization, the Nation of Islam, and that the FBI and the New York Police Department conspired to assassinate Malcolm X. And he said that uh, Thomas Johnson, one of the guys who was convicted and died in prison for assassinating Malcolm X, was innocent. And uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a pretty amazing story. Uh, Raymond says, after witnessing repeated brutality at the hands of my co-workers, that was the police that he was collaborating with, he said, I tried to resign. Instead, I was threatened with arrest by penny marijuana and alcohol trafficking charges on me if I didn't follow through with their assignments. On February 16, 1965, the Statue of Liberty plot was carried out. And this was a setup. This was to, to he was, his job as an inside informant and provocateur was to convince people in Malcolm X's organization to go out and try and bomb the, the Statue of Liberty. Uh, you know, and some of them tried to, and they got busted, and you know, et cetera. So anyway, he says, on February 16, 1965, the Statue of Liberty plot was carried out, and the men were arrested just days before the assassination of Malcolm. At that time, I was not aware that Malcolm X was the target. Thomas Johnson was later arrested, he writes, and wrongfully convicted to protect my cover and the secrets of the FBI and the New York Police Department. I have placed my full confession into the care of my cousin, Reginald Wood Jr. I have requested this information be held until after I've passed away. It is my hope that this information is received with the understanding that I have carried these secrets with a heavy heart and remorseful regret about my participation in this matter. A number of people have written about this. You can find it in multiple places. The story that uh, I found, one of the stories I found that I thought did the best job with this was... Uh, was over at uh, Daily Co's. But, um, you know, like I said, you know, I was in SDS at Michigan State University in the, you know, back in, in the day, uh, back in the late 60s, and um, we all knew this guy who would show up with uh, nice, new, nice new hippie clothes and was always yelling about, it's time to burn down the ROTC building. And uh, we always suspected he was, a, he was an informant. And we le learned later when, when Brad Lang, who was one of the leaders of the SDS, uh, sued, I believe it was Brad who sued, 
And uh, in any case, one of him or George Fish or Mike Price, uh, George and Mike have passed away. I don't know about Brad, but they sued the Michigan State Police and they got the Red Squad files. And sure enough, the guy was a police informant and, uh, you know, trying to get us to, to do this stuff. So anyhow, there, you know, there, there you go. And let us let us let us hope that that kind of thing doesn't happen again. But picking up your phone calls. Jesus in uh, McAllen, Texas. Hey, Jesus, what's on your mind today? Uh, greetings from the Rio Grande Valley. Um, yes, you. I'm calling. Uh, yes, I, I'm a Democrat. I voted for Democrats all the way back to the Clintons, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, now Biden. But in 2016, during the primaries, I actually voted for Donald Trump. And I voted okay. for Donald Trump. Why? Simply because I was more afraid of Ted Cruz becoming president. Oh. And I never thought. I never thought uh, uh, Trump had a chance to become president. You know, now would I never believed so. But I was more afraid of Ted Cruz becoming president. I believe he's the most morally bankrupt politician that we have today. And in the past four years, you know, I regretted sometimes ever voting for Trump. But uh, now I'm not so sure. I think that Trump had won back in 2016. We might be talking about President Ted Cruz in 2020. Yeah, uh, which would so, be a very grim scenario. Oh, oh yes. So yeah. I hope uh, Beto, Beto runs again, and I'm willing to go out into the streets and, and make sure that now Beto work becomes our next senator. I hope he, he's yeah. thinking about it. Well, and he's he's doing good stuff. I mean, he 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 got together his old campaign gang, I guess, and they made uh, in the fir- on the first day over 150,000 phone calls to uh, uh, senior citizens and disabled people in Texas to find out if they had access to power, if they had water, if they needed anything, and 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 a lot of people were saved and helped that way. And Beto was continuing to do that. Uh, you've got AOC, who has raised now five million dollars oh, yeah. for the citizens of Texas. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. meanwhile, Lion Ted, Flying Ted, uh, <laughs> let's go to Cancun with my old college buddy and <laughs> and my wife and kids. And oh, jeez, uh, yeah. I yeah. I think he's uh, toast. But is, is Ted Cruz is up for re-election in 2024, not 2022? Am I remembering that right, or or is it 2022? I'm, Probably, yeah, 2024. Probably. I'm not sure myself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's Uh, six-year terms. uh, Yeah. Yeah. So I'm in the Rio Grande Valley, and the only source of information that we have is, as far as your access to your program, is through my Roku here Mm -hmm. and through DirecTV, which is great. But, Mm -hmm. you know, one thing that concerns me, especially here in the Rio Grande Valley, which my local representative, Vicente Gonzalez, was elected by uh, 52 to 48%. And the Republicans are targeting his seat, hmm. which is astounding to me. So th- the thing is, is that as far as the radio is concerned, there's nothing available to the people. You know, the, yeah. the Republicans have access to, to anywhere you go, Houston, Austin, all kinds of AM radio, and that's how they're reaching a lot of people. 
Why oh, I know. And they're, and they're starting to do Spanish language radio as well. They're putting up oh, yeah. uh, right-wing Spanish language stations, and you've got, you know, Spanish language uh, Rush Limbaugh wannabes popping up all over the country. Yeah. Jesus, I, you know, I've, I've written about this. I've begged uh, progressive donors to, to pay attention to this. Uh, they tend to brush me off saying, oh, Hartman's just trying to get more radio stations for his show. No. That's not it at no. all. Uh, we no. have a serious problem. This is about, about $5 billion a year worth of uh, uh, promotion for the Republican Party happens on right-wing radio at no cost at all to the party. And, uh, you know, they, the Democrats need to pay attention to this. Jesus, i got to move along, but thank you for raising that. Uh, boy, a lot of calls from Texas today. Dominic in San Antonio. I, I hope you're well, Dominic, and you've made it through the storm. Uh, yes, sir. Um, I just want to say a couple of comments. GOP, I, don't, I believe, is not a, a true political party. And Governor Abbott coming over here for showcasing with the water. What'd you say? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I think the Republican Party actually is a political party. I mean, a legitimate political party, but they're not engaging in generally policy making, and that's the problem. Is is you know, exactly. all they've got is tax cuts for billionaires. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> and and ragging on people, ragging on minorities. You know, basically. <laughs> racial yeah. and gender minorities um and greg abbott um a governor i'm sorry governor abbott coming over here to showcase the the you know water i mean that was really uh is that gun something he just us. just did today or yesterday yesterday yes sir yesterday yeah what yeah. because you've got water in san antonio so he's going to come over and say hey look how wonderful things are he basically did a donald trump and just you know, hey, here I am. Except he wasn't throwing out rolls of toilet or uh, uh, paper towel, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Oh man. The thing is, though, the thing is that what did he do? He just brought it over and he just showcased because uh, here in San Antonio, Texas, apparently he's getting heat, a lot of heat, and it's just getting ridiculous that he had to come over and talk this and that and he denounced this and he he's commenting on this and that and he's he's you know squirming around like republicans do yeah yeah, yeah. surprise surprise well you know he's got to do something i mean he can't he can't hop on a plane to cancun now he's he's already seen how that plays out <laughs> so he's got to do something and and uh you know it's got to be a tough time to be a republican in texas right now dominic thanks for the call it's great to hear from you uh, it's amazing stuff here on the Tom Hartman program. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It's uh, taking back the mainstream media three hours a day, five days a week, right here at the Tom Hartman program. Stick around. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, 
you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Kenyatta in Los Angeles. Hey, Kenyatta, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Let me tell you something. There are a few things that I enjoy more than uh, watching and listening to you uh, through whatever medium. So um, I did want to talk to you uh, because I don't know if you're aware of it. I'm sure you're not. But over the last half dozen years or so, uh, very close to the assassination, uh, the anniversary of the assassination of Malcolm X, who I'm sure you know is a great hero of mine, I make it a point to uh, call into your show because... Uh, Malcolm X is, for whatever reason, canceled uh, in Mm. uh, American uh, culture and society. So I I appreciate you always uh, making a point to to, to mention him. Did you read the story about Raymond Wood's letter? Yes. And what I wanted to tell you is that uh, tomorrow, uh, both at Medium.com and uh, Op-Ed News, will be a piece that I'm writing or have written called Malcolm X Black History Month and Cancel Culture. And if you could give me 30 seconds, I'd like to read an excerpt from it for you. Um, Yeah, go for it. In my office, in my office, I have several photographs of Malcolm X. He and another man that I have tremendous admiration for, Muhammad Ali, were very good friends. And I have several black and white photographs of the two together in various settings. These are among my favorites. However, the one photograph that I treasure most is a photograph of his meeting with Martin Luther King Jr. The two would formally meet only once, and both would be assassinated within 36 months of each other. The first, Malcolm X, assassinated within one year of their historic meeting. Few people realize that the two were both starting to become more and more like each other in terms of philosophy. I can only imagine my lot as a black man in the United States if these two would have merged and survived. Their respective tactical differences notwithstanding, both of these great leaders died most violently. That is why the United States government had them killed. Yeah. Yeah, I can't uh, confirm that the United States government had them killed, but uh, this letter from Raymond Wood certainly uh, suggests that Malcolm X was killed by the United States government, or, or at least they played a role in it. Um, I, do you know if I, I'm, I'm guessing you're you have a better finger on the on the pulse of this than I do. Do you know if anybody is seriously looking into this at this point or is this all case closed and this is all behind us now? Uh, it's all kabuki theater. Um, yeah. Listen, there's one commonality in both of these assassinations. One of the things, Tom, that and I know you know this, that any time and I know that there, we've had a black president, Barack Obama, And uh, but Barack Obama didn't really he was very neutral. He didn't really espouse and he was in a better position, as far as I'm concerned, uh, to address the very unique situations that black people in this country, because of how we came here, uh, he was in a very unique position to address those issues. But he was politically afraid to do so. Anytime Mm -hmm. a black man 
or a woman has stood up for issues that affect the unique situation of black people in this country, they end up dead. And one of the things that uh, is a continuum between both the, again, these assassinations were within 36 months of each other, uh, is a man named J. Edgar Hoover. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. And, and uh, Hoover's involvement in, in the assassination of King also is something that I would like to see opened up because, yeah, I'd always assumed it was white racists, uh, but it may well, you know, Hoover may have played a part in that. Kenyatta, thank you. I look forward to seeing your piece on Medium.com and also on uh, Op-Ed News. Thank you. Boy, what a day, huh? Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Well, you know, Tom, I was thinking, isn't it really socialism to have the federal government and FEMA bailing out Texas the way it's, uh, we are right now uh, with generators uh, popping up their electrical grid? Now, they're the ones who wanted to be off the interstate grid. Uh, they threatened to secede every five years whenever a national election doesn't go their way. So I would think that uh, maybe not maybe not President Biden, but somebody in the administration at least should have asked them, do you really want to humiliate yourselves by taking this federal aid? I mean, after all, Ted Cruz says the Texans are angry. They're just angry that something like this could happen. And I would think, no, they really should be more humiliated that they let something like this happen. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, and the other thing is, given uh, a week ago, Governor Greg Abbott uh, saying that you know, all of the failures of the windmills and all the green energy, all the Green New Deal failures, I thought, well, other than your failure to winterize, who knew that Texas was a great experiment for the Green New Deal? It was successful for the last 10 years that that all these yeah. green energies were running Texas on its own, you know, isolated grid. And they weren't telling us they weren't telling anybody how great it was going. But for the 100 year you know, winter storm that hits the state. So, I mean, which is it? I really think that, and other than Ted Cruz, who apparently teaches his daughters, his, his children, that, you know, in Texas, when the going gets tough, the wimps bug out. Uh, you know, I really don't know what else there is to say about Texas. I really do think it's, and I, I, my sarcasm dripping aside here, Tom, is that you know that the 2022 and 2024 elections are going to be, it already is all over conservative media, is the Democrat Party is the Socialist Party. And so every policy, every, any, and all Democratic policies, no matter what, are socialism. And so I think, I mean, anything, Tom, that's what it's going to be. So I really think that somebody should have asked uh, the governor of the state of Texas, do you really want to take this socialist aid? Do you want to humiliate yourselves that way? That's what needed to be. That's the message. Because I know everybody's saying, oh, I mean, in previous callers notwithstanding, I'm sorry about their misery, but they have to address that question. Do you want to act yeah. like this or not? Well, this would be this would be the you know, if, if Joe Biden really wanted to stick it to Greg Abbott, the, the, you know, he could say, uh, yes, I'm, I'm signing today legislation to to uh, provide some good socialist relief. To <laughs> He's not going to do it, of course, but but. Uh, Point well made, Paul. Point uh, very well made. Thank you. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hey, not too much, Tom. Hey, I wanted to bring up a couple of things um, and connect it to um, how, how close we are to a, an authoritarian regime. One is this story about Jessica Watkins, who's an oath keeper, you know, and she is mm -hmm. claiming that she was invited 
to um, the Capitol the day of the the insurrection by the Secret Service. Now, now I know this is right now, it's under investigation, it's just hearsay. But if you combine that with, like, Stuart Rhodes, who's also in the Oath Keepers, who won an award, he won an award for mentioning how um, the the term, um, you know, uh, enemy combatant, as, as applying to American citizens, was tyranny. But when when Trump was in office, he he didn't care about executive overreach or um, you know apparently he didn't protest Donald Trump, and, and you know and and more specifically on that, I heard one guy talk about unmasking that sounded like he knew what he was talking about. Unmasking is really just a legal procedure that is that is can be a little bit um, controversial, okay? But um, the bottom line is, is that guy finished by saying Donald Trump has increased unmasking twofold in this country. Now, why is <laughs> Donald Trump unmasking people? And why wasn't Stuart Rose, uh, Stuart Rhodes and Jessica Watkins protesting this? And also, there's a story about Lloyd Austin, who's gotten rid of Jim Clapper's, um, you know, commissars. Jim Clapper referred to these Trump advisors to the Pentagon, these people that were appointed as commissars, right? Some sort of like, mm. you know, like back in the old Soviet term, to make sure everyone was politically aligned, right? You had a commissar of right. a policy, right? And, and, and General Lloyd Austin, apparently, Secretary of Defense Austin, has apparently purged some of these people. But I, I don't think it's enough, Tom. I really don't. We are, are, are dangling on the precipice of, of, of tyranny. And, and, you know, and people are protesting or, or complaining about Donald Trump offering Kim Jong-un a ride on Air Force One. But, but nobody says, why is Kim Jong-un a pariah? Well, because here's the question. If Kim Jong-un is a kleptocrat, it's none of America's business. But if Kim Jong-un, you know, is really in charge of a system that, that puts America in peril by acquiring nuclear weapons or whatever, okay, like, like, like I said before, this is... Oh, he was, selling, he was selling methamphetamine into the United States for years and years and years, too. He probably still is. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I get it. There's a lot of questions here, and... Uh, they do need to be investigated, and, and, and frankly, I'm very hopeful that, that this stuff does get investigated. And putting Merrick Garland in charge of the Justice Department is a huge first step. It's a really huge first step. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman University Book Club, and today we're reading from Robert Draper's book, When the Tea Party Came to Town. And it was actually the original title of this book when it first came out was called Do Not Ask What Good We Do. And this is the only book that tells the story of how the Republicans got together the night that Barack Obama was being inaugurated and decided that for the next four or eight years, they were going to do everything they could to destroy our first black president's presidency. And so I'm reading from the prologue. And he's talking about how Frank Luntz had organized that dinner that I was just mentioning he was very happy about that. The dinner tables were set in a square. This was at the Caucus Room restaurant in a private dining room. It was a little restaurant down at the corner of 9th and D Street. The dinner tables were set in a square at Luntz's request so that everyone could see each other and talk freely. He asked that Gingrich speak first. Gingrich was happy to oblige. And, you know, it goes on through this. Pete Huckster said, so we're in the depths. And then we get right into it. This was their plan. You know, what their party had done from 94 to 2000, what the Democrats had done from 2006 and 2008, the Republicans would once do again. 
They would take back the House in November 2010. Then they would use the House as the Republican spear point to mortally wound President Obama in 2011. They would do this and take retake the House and the Senate in 2012. Uh, they would do all this, but only if the American voter blessed them to do so. It made no sense. They all agreed to attack Obama personally. He was too popular. Got to be about ideas, said Eric Cantor. Democrats now controlled everything and were already with a monstrously priced economic stimulus package showing their true colors. Given time, they'd screw things up as the GOP had. But, said Paul Ryan, everyone's got to stick together. Ryan, a 38-year-old Wisconsin congressman and numbers fetishist, it was shiny earnestness recalled in Ozzie and Harriet America. Ryan hated squabbling among conservatives, the paleos versus the neos, the socials against the moderates, and on and on for as long as he'd been on the Hill, which was most all of his adult life. Ryan had long sought to be the Republican Party's glue, pleading for adherence to principles and data. At times, he looked like the underfed, hollow-eyed child of alcoholic parents. Well, the only way we'll succeed is if we're united, Ryan told the others. If we tear ourselves apart, we're finished. But, he added, he liked what he was hearing now. Everyone at the table sounded like a genuine conservative. It was a place to start. If you act like you're the minority, you're going to stay in the minority, said Kevin McCarthy. We got to challenge them on every single bill and challenge them on every single campaign. That's Kevin McCarthy. Luntz viewed McCarthy as one of the Republican Party's emerging stars, an easygoing, unthreatening guy who understood that language and appearance mattered as much as substance. Nonetheless, the polar and media guru interjected a cautionary note. Uh, one of the worst political performances I've ever seen, he said, was when the Democrats took over the House in 2007 and Nancy Pelosi shut out the Republicans and everyone whined about it. If any of you behave that way, I'll go on TV and hold you accountable. Luntz tended to get carried away, but everyone knew he had a point. Senator John Kyle began to focus on immediate tactics. He pointed out that Tim Geithner, Obama's nominee to be Secretary of the Treasury, had failed to pay his Social Security and Medicare taxes during his three-year employment at the International Monetary Fund. Kyle sat on the Senate Finance Committee, which would be conducting Geithner's confirmation hearings the next morning. The Arizona senator intended to go after the nominee. I'd like to hear your thoughts on the approach I should take, he said to the others. There was a pattern here, Gingrich pointed out. Charlie Rangel, a House Ways and Means Committee chairman hadn't paid taxes on his rental property income in more than two decades. Randall and Geithner would be wielding more power over how taxpayer dollars would be spent than anyone else in America. And then there's the web, chimed in McCarthy. There are freshmen who accept campaign money from Rangel. They're caught in the web. McCarthy suggested that they waste no time smacking down the New Democrats for the tax ads. The dinner lasted nearly four hours. They parted company almost giddily. The Republicans had finally agreed on a way forward. Go after Geithner, and indeed Kyle did the next day. Would you answer my question rather than dancing around it, please? Show united and unyielding opposition to the president's policies. Eight days later, Minority Whip Cantor would hold the House Republicans to a unanimous no against Obama's economic stimulus plan. Begin attacking vulnerable Democrats on the airwaves. The first Democratic National Republican Con Congressional Committee attacks would run in fewer than two months. Win the spear point of the House in 2010, jab Obama relentlessly in 2011, win the White House and the Senate in 2012. You will remember this day, Newt Gingrich proclaimed to the others as they said goodbye. You'll remember this as the day the seeds of 2012 were, were sown. Well, not so much, but I'd say that this is when the seeds of 2016 were sown.
forgotten or at least not discussed that night in the caucus room was what had been sown in America by January 20th, 2009. That was the day the meeting happened, the day that President Obama was sworn into office. On that evening, while the ruling party celebrated in tuxedos and the minority party retrenched over steaks and red wine, U.S. unemployment rate had climbed to 7.6%, the highest such indicator of national misery in 18 years. Things could get much worse. Joblessness in America would exceed 8% the following month. By May 2009, the number would climb to 9.4%, and by October, to 10.2%. And it goes on. It's a great book. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. Chuck in Champaign, Illinois. Hey, Chuck, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Over the course of the last five or six years, even before Trump was elected, I've seen a lot of, you know, my brothers and sisters within the union that are still avid Trump supporters. And a a lot of what their complaints, you know, rest on the ineffectiveness or broken promises of the Democratic platform. And trying to have those conversations, they completely shut you down just because, you know, you Give can't me an example. them that, well, for example, in trucking, deregulation of our industry, for a lot of people that don't know, in trucking, you used to buy a lane, so you would purchase the rights to run a certain lane, like, say, out to Portland from Illinois. So all of the freight mm-hmm. that ran in that lane, you had an authority to run that lane. This um, was pre-78, 79? It was Carter right. who so, deregulated so, the trucking so, industry. Yeah, Carter deregulated, which of course is is a Democrat, and then you go to NAFTA. Obviously, Clinton signed that, and and yeah. trying to that was negotiated. To to, NAFTA was negotiated by Reagan and Bush. Sure. Uh, but yes, sure. Clinton signed right. it. Absolutely. But you know, back then, and, and, everybody you know, was, was all excited about this whole new neoliberal thing about you know, hey, we need to vibrate, make the economy more vibrant because we were still suffering from the inflation that was caused by the Arab oil boycotts. But but anyhow, to, right, to, right. back to your right. question, Chuck. Yeah, we the can summarize my, this. The core, right. The core of my my question is: we hear, and I know that you've talked about it on your your program as well, about how uh, important this first. Uh, 12 to 18 or 20 months of the Biden administration is. And I wonder with your, um, I mean, you obviously have representatives on your show and, and you have contacts within the political atmosphere. You know, you obviously can't tell tell what's going to happen in the future, but just what's your feeling yeah. as someone who's I can, I can tell you, Chuck, that the Democratic Party that broadly understands that if Biden doesn't have substantial legislative successes that translate into measurable improvements in quality of life for average Americans, that the Republicans will seize control of the House and Senate in 2022 and they'll take back the White House in 2024. Um, there is a broad consensus about that. Sadly, you've got a couple of people, most significantly uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and, and maybe even uh, Dianne Feinstein, who are saying, well, no, we should still continue to you know, let the Republicans hang on to this, this giant club that they can beat us over the head with called the filibuster. Um, we'll see how that plays out. But I know that there is a lot of concern about exactly what you're talking about. And this is stuff that was not taken so seriously by the Democratic Party and the Obama administration. And they paid the price for it big time. And and, and during the Clinton administration... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. 
Oh, go ahead. Um, I was just wondering, you know, and I know it's it's been asked a couple times throughout even this show, who who talks to Mansion and explains, you know, the blocking of you know it's be West not Virginians. getting rid of the filibuster. Right, not not yeah, getting rid of the filibuster. What does that have long term? The long term detriment to society as a whole if this GOP can gain, yeah. you know, the Senate. And I the think House I think the then, way that this could play thing. out, Chuck, is that uh, Schumer puts up a piece of legislation that actually will help people in West Virginia. The Republicans filibuster it. Schumer then comes along and says, okay, we're going to blow up the filibuster. And at that point, if Joe Manchin refuses to blow up the filibuster, because he'll be the, he's the, he's the, the, the peg that if you pull it out, everything comes, right? Um, cinema will follow him. And uh, so at that point, he's going to have to uh, give in and say, yeah. Um, but, you know, we'll see. I mean, this is political brinksmanship that, that we're going to have to play in. And, uh, and, and just see how it how it plays out. Chuck, I got to run, but thank you for the call, David in El Paso. You got thirty seconds, David. What's up? Yeah, I was looking at uh, considering last week's uh, issue here in Texas. I was wondering, given the Republican policy that kind of led to this these failures, do you see that as a good example of or a precursor of where Republican policies would lead the nation? Yes. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. The Republicans, I mean, deregulation has been their thing, right? Small government, deregulation. And so you're spot on, David. And thank you for that question, because that's exactly what's at stake. Do you want to see America turn into a third world country like Texas? Pretty grim stuff. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy actually begins with you. That's the demos in democracy. The people. We the people, right? So get out there, get active, and get inside your Democratic Party. We need progressives inside the party. Tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Same time, same place. Have a good one. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.